0: Series today called conversations with Jesus and what we wanted to do was to ask the question what what did Jesus talk about with people if you were to have a conversation with Jesus what kind of uh, topic would he bring up what would he be interested in and so we want to go through the book of Mark and look I think it's about uh, six or seven different conversation points that Jesus had with people during his time here on earth And the first one that we're going to be looking at is his conversation with those who were accusing him of things. And so how did he handle that? How did he handle people speaking against him, questioning him? What was he, how would he respond to that? Because sometimes we question him. We have accusations against him. And how would he respond to us? So I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at Mark chapter 3 today. Father, I thank you so much that you speak. You aren't some far away God that we just have to imagine in our mind. But you came to Earth and you spoke to us and you let those words be written down that we could recount those conversations and hear you. And so I pray that that's what would happen this morning, that we would hear you afresh that we would know what's on your heart and that we would know how to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So you're gonna see up on the screen, we're gonna read through Mark chapter three. I'll make a few comments as we go through it and then we'll, uh, we'll make three, uh, three comments because that's what sermons have. Uh, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered. Again, everywhere he goes, he's attracting a crowd so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Now, what an interesting phrase, went to take charge of him. It means to seize forcibly. It's the same word that you would use if you were to arrest someone of a crime. What scholars say is that they were embarrassed by Jesus. He was kind of wrecking the family reputation, and so, they were uh, out of their embarrassment, they came to take charge of him, to seize him, and they said, he is out of his mind, and he's embarrassing us. This is the first accusations, there's two in this passage. This is the first accusation of Jesus, is that he's crazy. He's out of his mind. The second accusation follows. Verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So what's their issue? They're feeling threatened. This guy is coming to steal away at least two things, their security, their status, and their significance. And so they're not happy with Jesus. They feel threatened. They feel like he's contradicting uh, God's word. And they're here to accuse him of actually coming from Satan, well, that's different than who he is. So Jesus called them over to him and, then, and began to speak to them in parables or stories. How can Satan drive out Satan? You say I'm from Satan, and I just, I just drove out an evil spirit. How can you say that Satan is driving out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Now, this is a very interesting thing to say. He says uh, basically this. Okay, you say that I come from Satan, uh, but I cast out Satan. So even if I came from Satan, I'm still destroying him. So what are you talking about? You're you're making no sense. Uh, Regardless of where you think I came from, look at the evidence of what I've done. And you'll see that the end of Satan is drawing near because of my work. My love is vanquishing his evil. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What is he saying? I'm stronger than Satan, and I'm tying him up. And the evidence of that is I cast out demons. And this is what really is going on love is conquering evil. Then he explains what is really going on, both regarding his family and the religious leaders who are opposing him, and this is a hard verse that many people are paranoid about. Uh, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins in every slander, Uh, the word slander is the same word as blasphemy, so it's, it's the same word. In every blasphemy, they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin, or in another version, a sin with eternal consequences. Uh, Now, the tricky part of this is what is this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that doesn't allow us to be forgiven? So the moral of this morning is that we should all be paranoid (laughs) and uh, make sure we don't do that thing, whatever that thing is. Uh, Let's just comment on that for a moment. In 1 Timothy 1.13, it talks, Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about being a blasphemer of God and then being forgiven. And just the verse before it says that all blasphemy will be forgiven. So what's this talking about? In one place it says that blasphemy will be forgiven. In another, it says blasphemy won't be. So people get hung up on the idea that we're blaspheming God's spirit as opposed to God, but that doesn't really work, because God is God. So he seems to be contradicting himself that you can be, you can be forgiven and then you can't be forgiven. Um, as I read and study this, this is what I think it means. If you attribute the work of Jesus' spirit to Satan, you will suffer eternal consequences. So uh, this is how it works in my mind. If you look at what God does and say that that's Satan, then you're attributing all that work to Satan, not to Jesus, which just then nullifies any of his work. And what's the primary work that we need him to do? To save us from hell. To save us from eternal damnation. And we need him to forgive our sins. And if we don't attribute this work to him, then we can't see how this other saving work apply to us either. And so as we look at the work of God and say that's the work of Satan, we're actually excluding ourselves from all of his saving work, particularly the work that would forgive our sins. So it's basically saying if you don't believe in God, you can't be saved. That's basically what it's saying. And he said this because they were saying uh, he has an impure spirit, so they're accusing him of not being the son of God, and if he's not the son of God, he can't save. And that, of course, would leave us with an eternally difficult situation. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived standing outside. Now, this idea of standing outside is gonna be important in a minute, so take note of that. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him, so they're still insisting on uh, taking control of their son. And a crowd was sitting around. So you have some people standing outside and other people sitting around. That's going to be important in a minute. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him again and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Uh, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so he's saying... Uh, there's something thicker than blood, and it's a trust relationship with my father. And if you have a trust relationship with my father, then we're family. And if you don't, it doesn't matter where we came from, we're not family. It's a powerful thing to say. So let's, look at, let's talk a little bit about this. What is it behind their accusations? One, that he's crazy, and the other is that he's from the devil. What's behind their accusations? As we've already said, uh, they felt ashamed and threatened. You have one group of people who feels ashamed. Uh, They are embarrassed about Jesus. Have you ever been embarrassed about Jesus? Have you ever found it difficult to say that you're a Christian when you're at school or when you're working? And you go, well, you know, I, I go to church, but... It's embarrassing. I don't know that I want to associate myself with him. And then they feel threatened. Behind their accusations is really fear. I feel threatened by him. And if I let him be who he says he is, this is going to have huge implications on me. It's going to cost me something. And I feel threatened by that. And that fear is motivating me. The fear of embarrassment, the fear of being threatened by God. And this fear sends them in two directions, where they become demanding and they become distancing. And if you've been in a marriage seminar, you know that those are the two primary problems in a marriage relationship. Any relationship that's unhealthy, that's motivated by fear, goes toward control or distance. And this is what we see in this passage. Therefore, we demand, it says, that they would take charge of him. What does it mean to take charge of Jesus? How do you do that? How do you take charge of Jesus? I think it means that we believe that we know better than him. No, no, no. I know what you think. I'm going to tell you what I think. I know who you say that you think you are. I'm going to tell you who I think you are. No, I thought this through, and I'm 24 years old. And so I pretty much know everything. And so uh, I'm going to tell you who you are. I'm going to control you. I'm going to reimagine you in my mind. I'm going to be critical of what you do and what you say because I think I know better. You think you're loving? I just saw, I was uh, looking through Facebook this morning. I always have to you know, qualify that, that it wasn't Instagram. But, uh, but So I'm looking through Facebook this morning, and um, I saw somebody posted that there's a new line of gender-neutral children's clothing. that's just come out and they were posting that they were advocating that and supporting that. <clears throat> and uh, just walked by a, a, a universal bathroom. Now, I'm very sympathetic to the struggles that people have in terms of gender identity. I can imagine it being very challenging. But what we say is, no, 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 I know what's loving. I figured it out. I've thought about it for a long time. I've seen the abuses uh, toward people who are different. I hate those abuses, and so I have a solution for that. congratulations for being insulted by the abuses toward people, that's great. But somehow we know better than God as to how we should behave toward these things. We take control. No, That's not what it really means when we read the Bible. It doesn't really mean that, it really means this. Because I've thought about it for a minute. I think that we do this all the time. We look at a moment in which we could be embarrassed. If we tell the truth at work, I'm going to be embarrassed. So I'm going to take charge of this moment. I'm not going to do what Jesus wants. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I think is best. I'm taking charge of this moment. I'm seizing him. I'm arresting his voice and expressing my own. And so we somehow control God with our thoughts and actions out of fear. And then we distance. As it says here, the mother and brothers arrived and they were standing outside. That somehow we disassociate ourselves. I think of Peter, who when Jesus was arrested before he went to the cross, and people ask, you know, do you know him? I don't know him. <clears throat> and so we distance ourselves from Jesus because we're afraid. And I think it's very easy for us to stay, you know, I really struggle with reading my Bible. I really struggle with prayer. I struggle with with drawing close to God. And I know I should. But I don't. Not very often. And we think that the solution to that is to somehow try harder. We should... um, we should set our alarm five minutes earlier, or half an hour earlier, however ambitious you are. We should become more disciplined and we should really mean it. But maybe what's driving that disassociation, what's driving that distance is really a fear. A fear that God would be in control. We're engaging in a relationship that we can't control. One of the things that I, Uh, I think about often when I read my Bible is I think that uh, That I can't I can't control what I'm going to be reading next and I might not like it and It might just be boring And so I'm afraid that I'm not going to get anything out of it. I'm afraid I'm going to be stupid look stupid Uh, I'm afraid I, I won't connect or he won't come through and so I'm just going to distance myself I'm not even going to bother trying and the challenge is to link these behaviors of ours to a fear. To the fear of either being, uh, being embarrassed, but the fear of also just losing control and uh, not being who we want him to be for us. And so we can demand our distance. Now, how. Uh, does Jesus defend himself of being accused of being insane and impure? How does he defend himself? If he was to have a conversation with you and you were to come to him and say "Uh, you're insane, you're crazy what you call us to do. I would go so far as to say you have an impure spirit in you. I don't think you understand what love is the way that I do. Now he knows that it's about fear. But how does he respond when we're angry at him and we don't think he's doing what we should do? I was at two funerals this week. And, uh, you know, it was an emotional week. And I listened to people in the, in the face of. Uh, of tragic death, the second being a heroin overdose. I listen to the, uh, I listen to the mother who's burying her son speak boldly of the things of God yeah. and coming very close to commanding everyone there to follow and trust in God And uh, it was remarkable. In that moment, she could have easily thought that God was impure and untrustworthy, right? You say that you're loving. You know how many times I prayed for my son and he died in an overdose. Where are you in this moment? She could have done that. And in a way, we almost would have justified. It would have been justified, wouldn't it? So here's his response to whatever accusation we would have against God. Whatever, whatever, look at my work. You say I'm evil? Great, then Satan drove out Satan you know, and his end still comes. My evidence is that my love is defeating Satan's evil. And uh, you can't argue with that. So you go have your opinions. You tell me what you think is right and what you think is wrong. You can do that. But at the end of the day, I have evidence. And that evidence is demonstrated in what I just did among you. What silences our accusations is not a fine-sounding argument. It's a demonstration of the spirit of God. That's what silence arguments. I still think that this is true today. People have lots of accusations against God. And I'll tell you why they don't hit my heart. Because my life has been changed by the reality of Jesus Christ and the working of his spirit. My life has changed. I still remember the night that I became a Christian and I woke up the next morning and I knew I was different. I just knew I was different. I knew that I was given a new heart, a heart of flesh that replaced my heart of stone. I have evidence that refutes any accusation you would have against God. And you could t- talk about science and whatever, it would be whatever for me. And I don't mean to be insulting, but you can't compete with my changed heart. You just can't. You can't compete with the time that a demon left me and set me free. You can't compete with that. You can't compete with what God has done in my heart to help Debbie and I have a loving relationship with one another. You can't argue with that. I don't care what you're thinking. I know that I've prayed and my wife loves Jesus. And because of Jesus' presence in our relationship, we're different people. There's just, there's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can say when I, me of all people, lay my hands on somebody and they get well physically. You, if you know me, you'd know that that's a miracle. <clears throat> I'm not into medicine or anything like that. And so, you know, and, and God does something. Physically heals somebody. What are you going to say to that? Whatever whatever great Satan drove out Satan his end is still gonna come is the argument you follow me on this this is powerful this is powerful because the way that we often overcome our fears is through rationality thinking them through and Jesus's response is look at me just look at me and all look at what I've done and all your fears all your accusations are gonna be silenced by evidence, not by an emotional plea or some logical reasoning. I was just, uh, I was just talking to somebody the other day. They're uh, working in China, and he was saying he's a, he's a prof, and he was saying I didn't know this, that the, uh, I think he said all, I'm pretty sure it was all, but let's just back off of that a little bit because I don't have a super good memory. Most. Of the universities in China were all started by Christians. Isn't that amazing? So he, he, says, uh, he says, you know, you don't, government doesn't necessarily want everybody to know that because it doesn't serve their agenda very well. But you have undergirding so much of humanity the presence of God bringing hospitals and education, personal transformation, social transformation, and most importantly of all, the greatest work of all, the work of the cross. How can you argue with the work of the cross? How can you argue with an innocent man dying and rising from the dead? You can't argue with that. You can have questions about it, for sure. You can be confused. I'm confused all the time. But the evidence is irrefutable. So that's his defense. Look at what I've done. Satan is being overcome. His end has come, as it says in verse uh, 26. Number two, what's our danger then? If that's his defense, what's our danger? Well, the danger is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, saying that the work of God is the work of Satan, or maybe in modern times, the work of God is the work of man. Look at all that we've accomplished. Isn't this incredible? We're amazing. Who needs God anymore? What's our danger? Our fears can separate us from Jesus forever. So we can look and be paranoid about whether we blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, or we can back it up just a minute and say, what's threatening me? What am I embarrassed about? And we can look at the motivation of Jesus's family. We can look at the motivation of the religious leaders and understand that a life that's motivated by fear produces accusations, blasphemy. But it's the fear that needs to be our concern and not the paranoia, which is just another fear of whether we have said a thing that might curse us forever. The fear is the problem. Now, I'd like to encourage you with something. Don't befriend your fears. It seems as though uh, fears are a trump card. And then if you're afraid of something, we all back off and go, whoa, you know, I didn't know that you were afraid. I, I mean, that's legitimate. You're afraid of losing your job? I totally get that. You're afraid of what people are going to think about you? Oh, yeah, I'd be afraid of that too. You're, you're afraid of, uh, of if, you know, you're going to say something stupid? Yeah, that would be embarrassing. And somehow, fears justify unfaithfulness and mistrust. Somehow, it's it's justified if I have a fear. And if I read anything in this passage, it's this. That if I am motivated by fear, I will make my Savior my enemy because I won't be able to control him. I won't be able to manipulate him to have him do my bidding. It will cost me something and I'll probably suffer. And if fear motivates me, I won't be a Christian. Sobering, is it not? What if God would say to us, don't negotiate with your fears. Don't work them a deal. Hey, you know, I, I don't want to lose my job, so what I'm going to do is I won't say the name Jesus. I'll just say I'm spiritual. And uh, we just negotiate with our fears and end up accusing God. No, you don't know what's best for me. You can't keep my job. Oh, man, I can just tell you so many wonderful stories of people who have chosen to do brave things, and God has met them in those places. Again, what if one of the reasons why we don't experience the power and presence of God is simply we're afraid? And then we come to believe our own accusations, thinking that that's the point. His defense is evidence of love. Our danger is that we would be motivated by fear and that fear would separate us eternally from God. We know that this is true. What does it say about uh, the servants who received money from the master? What was the reason why the servant who received uh, one, it depends, one bag of gold, or uh, what, was the, what was the defense of that, uh, of that servant? I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground, see here's what belongs to you. It was fear, and what, is, what does the master say? Throw out that worthless servant into eternal damnation fear eternally condemned a man I exhort you do not befriend fear it will make you curse God as it did Peter he was afraid in your fears Are not helpful for you they will lead to accusation and to eternal separation I'm not suggesting that you know to feel guilty that you're afraid I'm just saying don't befriend it resist it because it's not serving you well and so what is our deliverance Uh, it's the final verse it says uh, those he looked he, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. So this is, this is not somebody outside making accusations, feeling embarrassed or threatened. This is people who have come in. They're, they're near Jesus. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Those who do God's will draw near to him because obedience quiets our fears. So I love how this comes full full circle. You have Jesus doing the will of God, driving out demons, raising the dead, healing people of sickness. He's doing the will of God. And some people can't see that as God. Their fears are blinding them so that they feel threatened by the very love of God. Ironic. Ironic. And so what does he say is your solution to not being motivated by fear, is you go and do my work. You go and do God's will. I'm God, Jesus, right? You go and do, and then if you live a life of love, you'll see me and draw close to me and be delivered from all your fears. Your solution is not thinking your way toward me. It's obeying your way toward me. Do what I say. I get your fears. Do what I say. I'm not minimizing your fears. I'm giving you a way out. What's the, um, if you struggle from anxiety, which I think we all do, what's the the method that we're given? It's a good method. What's the method that we're given uh, from counselors to overcome our anxiety? It's called exposure therapy. If you're a, if you're anxious about snakes, you know they'll you look at a picture of a snake and work that through your fear, and then you uh, and then you you look at a snake behind closed you know glass like you you expose yourself in baby steps till so you can touch a snake. I hate snakes. so I'd never do that. <laughs> um, but I was uh, my job growing up was uh, I cut lawns in the country, I have run over more snakes than you can ever imagine. And I have pictures in my mind of mangled snakes. I hate snakes. Uh, but anyways, this is a little moment of confession. Uh, but, you, but the idea is, is exposure therapy, that you actually do what, you, you do it, because your mind will never be good enough to just get you free. You actually have to do something differently to overcome that fear. I think psychology's onto something. How much more in Christianity, where if you obey your fears, you will stay stuck in them for eternity. But God comes in his genius and says, I can get you out of that. Do what I say. Don't submit to your fears, submit to me. And as you submit to me, you you not only overcome your fears, you see me. You know I, uh, you know I've been doing this pastoring thing for a while, and been trying to follow Jesus for a while. And uh, and you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't use myself as an example. Sorry, I'm not trying to make myself anything. But you you li- I, I I listen to people. Uh, Criticize Jesus and his advice. And what will often go through my mind is, you haven't loved much, have you? That's what goes through my mind. Because if you really try to see lives changed and invested yourself in someone else, you would understand God. But if you live a self-protected life, God is going to be a mystery to you you're not going to get him at all. He just makes weird stuff, makes that weird stuff that looks evil to you. It looks like an impure spirit. But if you engage in the works of God and know what that feels like and, and what you have to wrestle through to, to believe you know, what to do now and, and is, this, you know, you know, is this a mercy moment or a justice moment, all that kind of stuff, and you pray and and need miracles and all of those things as you as you try to do what Jesus wants you to do in your life you just see him differently not only do people get loved you you come from the outside to around him it's just what happens to you so we think that our you know our bible reading is a matter of Of working stuff, it's a matter of obedience. I'm desperate to read my Bible. Because I just tried to love a few people today. And I feel so inadequate. My word. I mean, I, I think of what I say, and it just feels like, you know, wah wah. Like it's just, how is this ever? And I just need God. I need to read his Bible, or I'll go crazy. I'll go crazy. And so, so what if the answer to accusations, what if the healing of our fears is found in doing what Jesus tells us to do? To love the lost. To be kind to one another. To overlook an offense. To not draw. Attention to ourselves, but to glorify Him. What if doing those things would be our deliverance? Now I know Jesus is our deliverer. I'm, I'm not. It would be the way to receive that deliverance through doing the will of God. Isn't that outstanding? Now I don't know about you, but I always find these kinds of sermons disappointing because I'd prefer something more clever that would take me years to unpack. It would allow me to procrastinate just a little longer. But God comes in his infinite love and says, you can do this now, and I will deliver you from your fears. Your accusations will no longer hold weight in your heart. Because you'll see me, the evidence will be clear, as you participate in my work. in conclusion... Living the I didn't write this in the, on the thing, but living the gospel enables us to receive the gospel. Living the gospel enables us to receive the gospel. And if we struggle with knowing that we're forgiven, love somebody else, work through forgiving them, and then you'll know the love of the Father. You'll get it in a way that you won't get it simply by meditating on it. Go forgive someone else. And you'll see just how much your father has forgiven you. Living the gospel enables us to receive the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God. And he has evidence of the transforming power of the Christian message of the living God. And so he's not afraid, because he's been doing it. Not just talking about it. I'll tell, you, uh, I'll tell you, and then I'll close. Here's my, here's my it's, a, it's a fear. I don't know if it's healthy. You can judge for yourself. Here's one of my, my biggest concerns for our church. We have these things called discussion groups, or discipleship groups, whatever you want to call them, D groups. And I'm concerned that we're going to be in our D groups talking forever about being obedient. I cannot tell you how afraid I am of that. And we're going to get into the Greek and Hebrew. We're going to discover exactly what obedience means. We're going to pray for one another. And we're not going to do the will of the Father. We're not going to reach out. We're not going to overlook an offense. We're just going to pray about it and think about it. I can't tell you how afraid I am of that. Because I feel as though, I believe, that if we are not a people of obedience, doing the will of God, Jesus will never make sense. His word will never become life-giving. And the lost will be punished by our disobedience. And that's not right. There's one thing that God's calling us to do His will. And if we make that our first priority, everything else finds its rightful place. And we get set free. Nobody's going to do this perfectly, and it doesn't matter. We just do what He says. And trust him. The way we overcome our fears is through obeying versus thinking. Worship team, can you please come up? Let's pray. Father, we are sorry for listening to our fears, we're sorry for exalting them so much that we actually accuse you. Of being insane. Of being evil. Not knowing what what is... Not knowing good. That's incredible. And so God, in an effort to be set free from our judgments, would you give us the grace to say yes to you in any given moment? Just yes to you. Not knowing not understanding everything nothing's exactly making sense but we have a hunch this is what you would like and so we do that and I thank you that the reward is that we get to be around you we get to be near you we get to be your your brother you get to be our father we get to be family I thank you for giving us such a reasonable way forward would you convict our hearts this morning? Would you help us to say yes to you? Not just in our minds, but in our hands.